All right. Today, we will be in John chapter 1. <clears throat> we're, gonna f- we're not finishing up John chapter 1. Um, just so you know, we'll be in the Gospel of John for uh, at least a year, uh, maybe a little more. I don't know. Uh, every time I think I'm going to start putting some things together and like, oh, well, we can do that whole part. I just, nah, we need to focus on it and go nice and slow and just enjoy our time in the Gospel of John. So I'm going to read it. Well, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to read the whole section as one chunk. And then we're going to break it down. And then I'm going to close by reading it all over again. Um, There's a lot going on here. And there's a lot of drawing us to the glory of God uh, in that. And so I want us to see that really clearly. Okay? So let's pray. And then I'll read. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks again for this day. And thank you for some time together um, in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by the love and grace that we see I'm in the Gospel of John. And I pray, Lord, that today, um, as every day, that you would transform our hearts to be one step closer to you. If that means it's a first step of faith, or if it means that we have been walking with you for a while and we are struggling with some things, we can leave that anxiety or the stress behind, and we can see through your love that we can get through anything. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 6. So what Cole shared with, and I didn't get to, I didn't get to enjoy it uh, because the recording didn't work, and so I didn't get to enjoy that sermon, and he didn't want to just preach it to me in the office. Actually, he did, but I said, that's just weird. And so um, I asked him to go record it all by himself, and it didn't really happen, so I think that's, that's probably going to be something I have to dock him for later, but we'll get to that some other time. But... Um, I'm sure he did a great job in verses 1 to 5, and then we get to pick up in 6. So you have the statement about the Word becoming flesh, and then you get, there was a man. So we're introduced to John the Baptist. Now, any time in the Gospel of John, you see the name John, John's not referring to himself. He's always referring to John the Baptist. He doesn't call himself John. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. So anytime you the name John pops up in the Gospel of John, it's not referring to John the disciple. It's referring to someone else. And so when he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about John the Baptist. Okay? Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, lots going on in these few verses. I'll try to refer to my notes, but 
I mean, I don't really need them, right? I'm just that brilliant. First, we see that the attention is being taken off of Jesus for a moment. So this whole gospel is the story of Jesus, but for a moment, the attention is taken from Jesus and it's put on John the Baptist. That's significant. It's significant to put the... Because if you read through the rest of the gospel, it's all about Jesus' interaction, what he said, what happened, what he did. And for this moment to kind of put the spotlight on the prophet is a big deal. Um, John the Baptist continues in the tradition of the prophets of past. That's why you'll see... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I wonder if someone kicked the power cord. I think Darwin's going to fix it. It's there in the office, Darwin. About now, did he get the power cord? Power might have went out all over town. Hear someone's alarm going off? Well, I'll just yell. <laughs> I can do that. So John the Baptist is continuing the tradition of the prophets. He is different, but he's similar enough that all of the... Usually I love giant exhaust, but I want it in my own truck, not driving by. All right. Um... So, that's why that you'll see next week that all of the Pharisees started asking, is this Elijah? What prophet are you? Who are you? Because how he called people to repent, that he was a, a witness, a prophet, a mouthpiece of God in a way that they hadn't seen for 400 years. And I know Cole talked about it last week, that there was this 400-year silence between the closing of the Old Testament and to the opening of the New, and Jesus arrives on the scene, but before Jesus arrives, there's this prophet that's speaking like all of the Old Testament prophets. And they are alarmed. They're shaken. They're like, is this, it's back. The voice of God, the witness of God, it's happening. They're all shaken to their cores. They're trying to figure it out. But then John the Baptist starts to tell them things they don't want to hear. They don't like it. But you need to focus in on that this prophet is, he's an image bearer of God, but he's trying to be the best reflection of God himself to the people of God that they could ever see. And that's a lot of our role as being witnesses. Like, you, I don't know if you've been around church very long, but you'll hear people, uh, I, I need a witness to someone. And we would say evangelism. We say don't be, don't say witness because that sounds weird, and we don't like that. That's too churchy. But that's really what you're doing. If you're an eyewitness testimony in a court case, then you're seen as an expert. You're seen as someone who's going to bear witness to what has happened, and it, you come with an authority because you are an expert or you were there. So when we see that there's a witness, a prophet in John the Baptist. He's there to point people to the glory of God, not to himself. Today, some people would say that preachers and pastors have that prophetic gift, that it's our job to point people to God through the word of God. And that's why it becomes dangerous 
when you have pastors that point people to themselves more than to God himself. Um, I know that this has gotten me in trouble before, but I still think it rings pretty true that anybody often in church world that puts their face on the cover of a book, I'm always suspect at what the message is out of that book. Now, there's some people have done it, and it's great, and I don't disagree with what they say, but I'm always a bit concerned from the first look of, oh no, why is his face or why is her face on the cover? They're supposed to be bringing glory to God through their words. Why are they marketing themselves? Now, maybe that's just how it works, but I'm always initially, uh-oh. I've gotten into a few and been okay. But you're not supposed to bring the prophet, the teacher, doesn't bring glory to themselves. You're supposed to point people to God. That's what John's doing here. His job is to point people to Jesus, to the glory of God. That's his job. If you look, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So it's our job as believers, as people who love Jesus, we're to be witnesses of Christ to other people in our lives, people around us. That what comes out of you is supposed to be pointing people to the Father. I know a couple weeks ago, Raina was sharing the idea of there's multiple ways in as we disciple others or attempt to disciple others, there's things that are either upward towards God, inward towards ourselves and our own personal walks and outward towards others. Well, the witness that we're seeing here is a clear example as John the Baptist is looking outward of himself. He's looking to reach out to others who would hear this truth. He's not there to point people to himself, but to the light. Verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus is coming into the world in flesh. He's coming as a Jew. He's coming to continue in that covenant that was made with the Jewish people. He's, he's there to point people back to that truth, and yet they are going to reject him. We know this to be true. We know as we have been around church for a little bit, we know that's what happens. But it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But if you look right before that in 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, so even in the people of God, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus, God used that for his glory because then it opened the doors of that covenant to all of the Gentiles, to all people. So even in that rejection that comes Jesus' way from his own kind, that opens up the gospel to everyone. God is going to get his glory no matter what. Whether you accept him or reject him, he will get his glory through your life. He'll get it as you glorify his name, as you honor him with your life, and he will get it in the rejection of him. If you push God away, if people reject him to the end of their lives and they have made a decision to reject God and they are judged for that, then even in that, God will get his glory because he's proved himself to be true. But then he says, the grace. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the good part. That in spite of everything in my past, everything in my present, God has chosen me, not of the will of my flesh, but of his will. That will make, that's what's so different about all the religions in the world compared to Christianity. Every other world religion says, clean yourself up, fix things, achieve things, attain things, go after things. And Jesus, through the gospel of his sacrifice on the cross, says, I choose you. I choose you in the midst of wherever you're at and your mind. You're mine. And when you become a child of God, you're brought into the family. We have people in our congregation, people in this community, that have walked in the, the joy and sometimes the frustration of adoption. And if you talk to any adoptive parent ever, they will, if you say, well, hey, you've got, you've got five kids, four that are yours and one that was someone else's. If you say that kind of thing, you might get into a fist fight. I know of one family in this church that you will be pummeled like that. Those are their children. They're welcomed into the family. Any adoptive parent that goes through the, the joy and all of the walking with a, a child and bringing them into their home, that's their child. And that's how God sees you. You aren't the second-rate kids. Jesus was the good kid. He was right. He was good. He did all crazy cool things. And then you're just like, well, you're, you're the adopted kid. You're just the one that we took on because we had to. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the Trinity are like, well, we got all these adopted kids. I guess we'll just, we got, we're stuck with them now. You are brought into the family of God. You're given the choice meal. You're given a place at the table. You're sitting at the right hand next to Christ. You are part of the family. That kind of language was revolutionary for John the Baptist to be proclaiming that in the, near the Jordan River, for him to come as a prophet and say those things, especially as the Jewish people rejected what he had to say and Gentiles are being baptized in that river, that things were happening, Jews and Gentiles are called, called to repent and everyone's coming together in this place. Like it, it shattered their presuppositions of what it's to be a person of faith. And here we're seeing in the Gospel of John that it's not your will that does it. God chooses you. He chooses you to be his child. That's better than you forcing your way in and saying, I want to be a child. He's saying, you're mine. You're mine. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, um, if you look how it translates out, it, it literally, you could translate it as pitch a tent or like set up shop or made a home. Um, that language is not used very often and it's used usually in tabernacle language. So for the Word to become flesh and to dwell among the people, that's the language of you had the place of God, the church, the tabernacle, and the holiness of God would dwell in that place behind the curtain. And so for the Gospel of John to say that Jesus, the glory of God in flesh, came to dwell among the people, that's a, a clear mark in the sand. 
It's a clear delineation from everything else that this is God in flesh to come be with his people. Do you know how revolutionary that is? How amazing that is? That the one that spoke you and I into existence, we know from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Coloss that, that, God, that Jesus spoke all this into existence, that that power of the universe chooses to come into flesh to be amongst all of us, to show us how to live, to take on our sins that we can't bear on our own, to be with us. Did you guys study Greek mythology in high school or college? You had to a little bit in English class, I think. Um, I, I always enjoyed that because Greek mythology and Roman mythology was so much like reading comic books to me. You had all these superheroes and powers and things, and so I was all in. And I was always struck by how these superior beings, supposedly, were so petty in about everything else they did. Well, here's this supreme Zeus, Poseidon, whomever, and they turn themselves into a bull or into a person, and they come down on earth, and they're hanging out. I thought you were supposed to be this benevolent God with superpowers, and they were petty, and they bickered, and they fought, and it was disgusting. And when they would come to dwell amongst people, they would often take on the forms of animals. They would take on the forms of other things. They never came down in their fullness for the people. And they never came down to sacrifice themselves. They never came down to dwell amongst. They were 100% about themselves. The fact that God, the Son, the eternal part of the Trinity, stepped out of his place with the Trinity to dwell amongst his creation is mind-blowing. That he loves you and he loves me so much that he would step out of his holy existence in perfect harmony and perfect community with the Trinity to be amongst all of us. Even if it was for a short 33-ish years, he came to be with us. That's, that should show you the level of love that God has for you. That isn't just throwing edicts from on high down for you to follow, but instead steps into our lives to show us, steps into our lives to suffer, to weep, to see with his own human eyes, 100% God, 100% human, all that he had created and comes down to rescue us. That's a powerful witness that we're seeing in the Gospel of John. That he loves you. That he loves you. We continue, verse 14. We already said that, but I'm going to read it again. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. So how we know, if well, well, you will know, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus. They're cousins in their human form. But then John says, he came before me. Well, how did Jesus come before John if they're six months apart and John's older? Sunday school answer, because Jesus has always been. He's always been. So you're seeing all these declarations of the divinity of God the Son throughout these verses. 
And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made him known. That the fullness of God dwelt in flesh in the person of Jesus. And that we know exactly how God the Father is going to deal with all of us because of how God the Son and Jesus deals with us. Too often, people try to differentiate God the Father and God the Son and say God the Father is that Greek mythological Zeus character who's always throwing lightning bolts down and causing things to happen, smiting everyone. But you see God the Son in Jesus and how as we continue through the Gospel of John for months, you will see how Jesus interacts with people people in sickness, people in rebellion, people in leadership, people in the lowest times of their lives, and people in the greatest joys. And how Jesus interacts with all of these people is exactly how God the Father wants to interact with us. Don't you ever think that rebel, cool, hippie Jesus is the loving one who wants to sprinkle Jesus' fairy dust to make it all good, and God the Father is the one who's the great punisher. We just got done studying the book of Revelation the last year, and we see that Jesus is the one who is going to administrate justice over all of those who are in hell. Don't you ever differentiate the two like that. When we read the Word of God and we see Jesus on display, we're seeing God the Father on display. And how much Jesus is willing to sacrifice and love lets us see just how much the Father wants us to be in that family. He loves you. And he was willing to send his son for us to see how to live and to also to die for us. The end of 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known that the law that was given Moses was a temporary diagnostic tool for us to see that we can't do this on our own. The law was never meant to exist forever. It was meant to show us that we don't have it in us to be holy without the saving act of Christ on the cross. And we see that in Jesus, grace and truth reign. That the law points that we have a problem and the solution is Jesus. The solution is Jesus. I'm going to refer to my notes for the first time. So I wanted you to see this. After verse 14, we see that in Jesus, the glory of God and his greatness is visible. We see in the prophets that John the Baptist is telling us that Jesus is the externally existing God. Sorry, eternally existing God. External, I don't know. I can usually roll with the punches, but all the sirens and Chuck driving off to get someone. I know there's someone trapped in an elevator. I'm thinking about like Chuck because that's what he does. So the fact that he took off means someone's stuck somewhere. I'm like, all this is going in my head. I'm like, okay, never mind. All right. Uh, that when the law was given to us, it was to point us to grace. 
The law wasn't the instrument of grace. It's to point us to grace. That grace is found in Jesus. That grace is found in his sacrifice for us. It's found in him choosing us to be part of the family. There's a mystery that I don't think anybody really... I've read a lot on this, and I don't think anybody really gets it. If you say you really get it, you're wrong. There's a mystery in, I believe, 110% that Jesus chooses us. We don't choose him. I think it's all over the word of God that he chooses us and he saves us and he rescues us that in, left in our flesh, we don't have it in us to choose the goodness of God. It requires the Holy Spirit to call us to himself. It requires witnesses like all of us to speak truth into people's lives. There's a lot of steps in that, but it's Jesus grabbing us and saying, you're mine. But there's a mystery in that moment of our humility, of us surrendering our supposed rights of our individuality and saying, yes, that we respond to that call. There's a mystery in that moment where you've got the constant call of God to all of us and we finally put down all the barriers and say, yes, Lord. It's really us allowing ourselves to be rescued. If you've taken a first aid or like lifeguard training, if you've ever been through lifeguard training, they will teach you that when you're trying to rescue a drowning person, they will almost drown you trying to save themselves. Everybody been through that class? Yes? What do they tell you as a lifeguard trying to save someone? They're trying to do that. What do they tell you to do? Punch them in the face, twist them over, hold them under until maybe they pass out, then you can save them. I mean, I think there's probably more specific Red Cross protocols. But <laughs> you save yourself. To this day, if you're in law enforcement or you're a firefighter or you're in any position where you're going to rescue people, you have to save yourselves. Firefighters have so much oxygen, they will get out of the building when they're about to run out. The alarms go off. Even though they can see someone 60 yards away, they got to get through the debris. They're told, you got to get out because we can't sack. You can't die. If you're dead, you can't save that person. They told us if, God forbid, something would happen in this church. If there was an active shooter incident, something came into the church, law enforcement would crush into our building. They would eliminate the threat, and if they walk, they will walk over people who are screaming help and are bleeding out on the floor because they've got to eliminate the threat. That you'll be screaming, save me, save me, I need help. Well, they've got to eliminate the threat before they can help you. And so you're going to see this rescuer, and you're going to be all distraught. And how often have you talked to people that see Jesus as rules, regulations, don't tell me how to live, and they're missing the fact that God himself stepped out of heaven into the flesh of Jesus to rescue us, and then we start nitpicking the rescuer. Well, I want to be rescued, but don't, don't do that. Well, rescue me, but, I mean, I want to be saved. I don't want to suffer an eternity, but I don't want to, like, do these things. I don't want to change this part of my life. I don't want to just... Give me my get-out-of-hell-free card and just leave me alone and let me live my life. Have you ever been around someone who's been rescued? Who's been saved? Who's been pulled out of the fire, pulled out of the car? Someone that CPR has worked on, that you've helped? 
They'll do anything for that rescuer. They name their kids after them. They honor them. This last weekend, we celebrate. We didn't celebrate. We remembered 9-11, didn't we? There were people putting things up all over social media. There was memorial service. There's all these things. How quickly is that going to be forgotten? And then we're screaming at the rescuers because we don't like the rescuers anymore. That's what we do with Jesus. We have people that are rejecting the rescue. They're fighting against the rescuer. They are going to have to deal with that themselves. That's part of God calling them. That's part of God wooing them. And if they consistently reject the rescue, then they're going to perish. It's our job, as we follow the tradition of John the Baptist, to be the witness. Do you know that Jesus rescued me? Do you know that he helped me through this? Do you know that I was going this direction? And I was so far from where I am now, and he rescued me. He saved me. I know that language of saving gets people get all freaked out about it nowadays, but it's the truth. He's saving us from ourselves, and he's saving us from eternity separated from God. And then those of us that have been rescued, that you have legitimately professed a faith in Christ, You've welcomed that into your heart. You've welcomed that truth into your heart. You've welcomed the Spirit into your heart. He's claimed you. You know that. How do you treat your rescuer? Do you treat the rescuer as, well, you know, I'm going to keep you in my pocket, and the next time I need rescued, I'll pull you out? Or do you fall on your face and say thank you to the rescuer? That anything he would ask of you, you would do because he saved your life. He saved your eternity. He helped you in ways that you can't fathom. There were so many stories over the weekend, running through the news, running through social media, running through of how this person saved me, this person rescued me. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank. That should be our posture every day towards the Savior. He saved us. He rescued us. We are His because He chose us. That's what John the Baptist is bringing to these people. We're going to see next week that it, it, ends, or it ends up in an outward example of this and a new covenant coming to these people through baptism. But right now we've seen the Word become flesh and we see this testimony of John the Baptist unleashing these solid truths for us today. That Jesus came to rescue you. He came to rescue me. It rolls off my tongue as a joke, but I mean it 100%. When I'm talking to people who are outside the faith or maybe curious about the faith, or even my own family who knew me um, and all my rebellion and my rejection of God and rejection of even trying to follow Him in an honorable way, if God can choose me and save me, then you better believe grace is open for everybody. My behavior isn't always of God. My language isn't always of God. My thoughts are not always of God. My decisions aren't always of God. But it doesn't change the fact that he loves me, he rescued me, and yes, I'm in the fight every day to put him first and to respond to his call each and every day, and I am so thankful that his grace is new each and every day. He's never going to let go of me. But i got to be in the fight of growing more and more close to Christ 
so that I would be a good witness of him. Are you in that fight with me? This is me gauging you off. You shake your head, then if you're not, then I need to go talk to you about Jesus. That's my, you know, that's what I was doing there. Okay, good responses. I got a lot of work to do. All right. As we continue through, next week we'll talk about baptism. As we continue through John, I want that to be kind of in the back of your head. If I was rescued by Jesus, and I believe that to be true because of the cross, how do I treat my rescuer? Would I follow his directives wherever he would ask? Or do I want to pick and choose how to be rescued? That's not how we grow in our faith. We grow in our faith, we grow in our trust, we grow in the rejection of the anxiety of all the stuff that swirls around us when we trust him for everything. He loves you, he rescued you, and he wants the best for you. Will you walk in that truth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had in your word and thank you for, for saving us, for rescuing us. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that's kind of on the fringe of understanding that, I pray that you would open their hearts to the truth that they're loved by the creator of the universe. That you stepped out of heaven to save all who would humble themselves. And that we are brought into the family of God in that moment. That you welcome us with open arms. You call us your own. And you'll never, ever forsake us. Help us, Lord, to know that. And for those of us who have been walking with you for a while, I pray that we would grow to continue to reflect um, the rescuer. That you'll help us be good witnesses in this community, in our families, and our friends. That when people ask what's different about us or why we think the way we think or how we act or even we, in our failings, when we ask for forgiveness, when we apologize for the things that would dishonor you, that people would be struck by that. Then in our desire to be a good example of you, Lord, others would come to a faith in you. There are so many people with so many self-help books and TV shows and things where they're trying to help people. And I pray, Lord, that we would step into all of our conversations with the truth. That we need you. That you love us. And you want the best for us, which is yourself. Help us to do that, Lord. We love you. Amen.